Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Vinay Nadkarni, head of global business development at ClearBridge Investments, and I'm pinch hitting for our normal host, Jeff Schultze, our investment strategist, who's out on paternity leave. So we're taping this on February 13th, uh, 2019. He usually starts with a personal anecdote. I'll start with mine, which is today is my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. So my parents are no doubt not listening to this podcast, but in case they are, a shout out to them and Love them very much. So for those who have uh, listened to our podcast before, ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $125 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So speaking of research, uh, I'm excited to be here today with Dimitri Dayan, a senior analyst covering the energy sector for ClearBridge. Dimitri has been covering oil and natural gas stocks at ClearBridge for four and a half years. As he tells our clients, he joined the firm in July of 2014 on literally the day that uh, energy peaked uh, and has 13 years of energy-focused investment experience. Dimitri, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So the topic of our February podcast is understanding today's oil markets. We'd love to get your feedback about the topics we cover and how we can make our podcast better. You can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. So, Dimitri, I'll start with an opening question, which is maybe when we were here a year ago, uh, if we were here a year ago, we would be talking about the separation of oil prices versus energy stocks. And then, as you've written internally, you had oil kind of peak at 75 bucks right around the end of the third quarter and really dive bomb in the fourth quarter, touching, I think, a low of about $42. So maybe just give the listeners maybe your perspective on that fourth quarter oil price collapse and kind of what happened and, and roll back the game tapes there. Sure, happy to discuss this. So, the the environment in oil prices has been phenomenally interesting over the past twelve months. Crude started out twenty eighteen in the fifties, went down into the low forties, and then actually rallied very very strongly into the seventy five dollar range on WTI coming into the fourth quarter. After which, as you mentioned, it had a strong collapse, and crude went down to in, into the forty two dollar range right around Christmas. So, what happened there? The rallying crude was caused by several factors. One you had very strong macro demand environment throughout 2018. We had synchronized growth across the United States, Europe. We had strong comments coming out of Asia. That spurred demand that was actually quite robust last year above trend and peaked probably in the middle of the year. At the same time, you had strong U.S. growth, but sort of on pace with what you would have expected for the past several quarters. So it wasn't unusual in any way. But you had a background of moderating supply coming out of OPEC countries, coming out of Venezuela specifically. And you had significant optimism in the market that as it pertains to Iran, that as the Iran deal or JCPOA, as it is known, is taken off the table by President Trump, that the exports out of Iran and Iranian production will go down quite a bit. Expectations were for over 2 million barrels of declines as the rhetoric going into that event was that no waivers will be granted to importing countries. And um, the administration was very, very forceful about that. In anticipation of this, in order to, to prevent a major spike in crude, which would be caused potentially by 2 million barrels of Iranian oil co coming off the market, 2 plus million barrels of Iranian oil coming off the market, uh, our allies, specifically Saudi Arabia and, and, and other allies in OPEC, ramped up their production in order to replace the barrels there were would be lost from Iranian sanctions in the market to reduce, to cushion that shock, to reduce it. 
comes November 4th, which was the deadline for November 6th, I apologize, for removing, uh, for the expiration of JCPOA. The Iran deal is a better note. And President Trump great grants waivers. And grants waivers almost across the board, um, not quite across the board, but a lot of them, the vast majority of countries received waivers, um, several receiving very large waivers. And now you have a problem in the market where you're doubled up on production. You have Saudi barrels, you have other OPEC member barrels coming back into the market. And as you remember, in the summer, they've added barrels back in, in anticipation of this. And you have Iranian barrels that are also in the market. So you're doubled up. And total supply growth is now exceeding demand growth. And you're starting to build inventories. And so crude, you essentially had to do a 180. You had to go the exact opposite way where it was going in order to get supply to moderate effectively. Now, on top of this, as this is unfolding, U.S. production actually stepped up. So it wasn't maybe the sole reason for the decline of crude in the fourth quarter, but it was one of the factors. Production did go up, um, take a step higher in August and September. And at the same time, as we know, the S&P 500 started to roll really hard. So you had, because you had fears about demand, you had fears about trade tensions, nobody, you know, kind of that global uh, synchronized growth narrative was getting weaker, was fading a little bit, and folks were starting to get worried about you know, what would crude demand growth actually be like at the same time as you have the influx of oil into the market, a lot of it being caused by sort of, you know, lack of direction on, on Iranian exports. And so combine all those things together, you form a perfect storm, supply exceeds demand, and crude has to back off until such time that you can rebalance the market. So one of the things that you've written consistently uh, internally uh, to our to our portfolio managers over the last few years is really, you know, especially in a cyclical industry, this is a math equation, right? It's supply side as you just walk through supply and demand trying to match each other. And I think what's been very hard for people who've been covering the sector for a long period of time is that supply dynamics are, are changing a lot. You've talked about how shale has really, I think, transformed the kind of global supply landscape. So maybe let's focus more on the supply side and what you see as kind of the key drivers and kind of key factors influencing that supply side outside geopolitical issues, you know, kind of in the near term. Sure. So when we talk about price, and, you know, you mentioned this uh, a second ago, is in, in the commodity market, the price is the mechanism to get supply and demand to match. It will send a signal to the market and the producers will respond accordingly, depending on where they are on the global cost curve. We're seeing that play out as we speak right now as well. So in general, supply, supply growth is moderating. OPEC took its first action in um, kind of in December of last year, recognizing that they've doubled up and recognizing that their expectations for Iranian growth are incorrect. Yep. They start removing barrels out of the market. So that's something that's already has decision has been taken and supply is following through. And you know, we saw it over the past several weeks and weekly DOE numbers, and today being another example, imports into the US are are collapsing. They're, they've gone down quite a bit uh, relative to historical norms. So OPEC plus, which includes Russia, is taking action that they've they've they said they would. In fact, there were headlines even you know even this week. Uh, Saudi Arabia is discussing taking their production down to as low as potentially 9.8 million barrels a day. So that's coming off of 11 million barrels a day in November. So they're following through and more in their commitments. Potentially, it's what it sounds like. At the same time, you know, I know we don't want to talk about geopolitics, but you know, Venezuelan production is very important and it is going down. Um, it's been on a declining trajectory since for a long time, but really since 2016, 2017, you kind of had some stability in that country. And you had production in a low twos 
million barrels per day. We're now down to 1.2 million barrels a day. And sanctions are also potentially going to take effect there, which would be negative. Iranian production has come down as a result of sanctions. It hasn't gone down nearly as much as you would have expected. It's not rhetoric going to November, but it, it, it has come off. The waivers that were granted are six-month waivers. So as we go into the end of middle middle end of spring, we'll see what action, further action the administration is going to take on that on those waivers and the resulting outcome on those barrels. But swinging back to the more economic side of it all, the US US production. US, of course, is the swing producers we've discussed for a long time. And that has been the 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 macro change that has shale, that shale has brought into the industry. U.S. went from being kind of a marginal producer to being a swing producer, and that has reshuffled the global cost curve effectively. And U.S. producers are the most economically sensitive producers. This is a group of ENPs that effectively spends 100% of their cash flows, in many cases, over 100% of their cash flows. In, you know, when I started in this industry, we used to call them checkbook drillers. So they effectively just spend whatever it is that they get in the bank. So to signal from the market to the North American ENPs, is a declining price of oil means your cash flows have now declined a lot. And while the industry was committing to living within cash flows at a higher commodity price is now finding itself in a heavy outspent position. So the response is to moderate spending. They're price takers. They have no control over the price of the commodity. So you can only control your own, your own cash outlays. And we're seeing that. So cash flows have declined. The rig count has started to come off. We're down about 3% over the past few weeks. Earnings season is underway as we speak, so we'll see what folks are reporting and how they're treating 2019. But so far from the independent ENPs, we've seen them reacting down high single, low double digit type of CapEx cuts year on year. So that's sort of playing out as you would have expected it to be in, in this environment. And you know, as we discussed, the industry is on the treadmill. So the interesting and unique feature of shale is that it's a very high decline rate asset. And decline rate meaning you, know, you drill a well in shale, it comes, off, it comes on really, really strong. And then 12 months later, it's down by 60 or 70% of its original production. And when you stack a lot of these years on top of each other, you effectively have an industry that has an average decline rate of call it 35 to 40%, depending on who you are or where you are in your life cycle, but very, very high. That means exactly what it sounds like. If this company stops spending money 12 months from now, they'll have 35% less oil production. So very significant decline rate. And just to compare that to the rest of the world, the total average decline rate for the globe is about 6%. So it's a very, very material. So it's like down. 6x with the rest of the world? Absolutely. Right. So that's a big, big swing. And, and that is a unique feature of the shale, of the shale resource because it's so tight and pressure is so high. So when you slow down activity, as we're seeing, if activity is flat, call it year on year, your production growth will go down. Now, you'll still grow but you'll grow a lot less than you did in 2018 if you don't increase activity in 2019. And that's sort of the dynamic of shells that you have to increase activity every single year by double digits if you're gonna continue to grow at the pace you've been growing. And rough math is such that if you say you don't grow, say it's flat activity in 19 over 18, production growth will probably be cut somewhere in half relative to what we saw in 2018. And so far, as we said, product, you know, earnings season is unfolding. We'll see where we we'll see where we land, and we'll see where commodity prices land over the next several weeks. But budgets seem like they're coming in down, high, high single, low double digits. So, as you were talking, I was struck. I, re- I remember it was about a month ago. You came back from the uh, uh, energy conference in Miami, and reading your notes, I think what struck me so much was just the general tone. 
you know, almost generalists in the, that attended really hate the sector. And even spe specialists like yourself who have lived this energy is like, oh my gosh, you know, like apathy or just sentiment is so, so bad. So I guess the question for you, Dimitri, is having seen that and just recognizing sometimes things improve the most when you go from, you know, bad to less bad. So what changes kind of sentiment and, and kind of revive interest in commodities broadly in your mind? Yeah, I mean, the sentiment, you know, is quite bearish out there. And, and, and to be honest, like, who, who can blame them, right? I mean, the sector has not done well. Uh, we're seeing extreme cyclicality, not even from year to year, even within the year itself. Right. So it's becoming difficult from the timing perspective for folks not actively trading the stocks very aggressively. Uh, but the question is, what changes the sentiment, right? And the way I frame it to, you know, internally, and I frame it to the to the companies themselves, to the energy companies when we when, when I speak to them, is how do you as companies plan to compete for capital dollars within within stock portfolios, within portfolios like the ones we have at Clearbridge and just broadly around the world in the generalist portfolios that allocate a lot of capital. Why shouldn't you be starved of capital? Why do you deserve to be in there? And I think the answer is relatively simple, although quite complex, is that you will compete for capital when your returns and capital employed are in excess of your cost of capital and your free cash flow and growth profile is compelling to a generalist portfolio manager. They will allocate capital to you to you then. And the world has changed because the question would be like, why, why wouldn't energy companies be doing this? Like, this is just so simple. Like, why wouldn't that be the case anyway? Why wouldn't they thrive? Why wouldn't they be there already? And the world has changed. So over the past 30 years before the shale revolution, before the advent of shale, the world was actually kind of straightforward for energy. Energy prices went up and down, still driven by supply and demand. But overall, the concern was peak oil. Now, where do we, you know, when does oil run out? When, where do we get oil? And the companies were incentivized and deliver value but through exploration. You have to go and find oil. It was hard to get. You didn't know where it was going to come from. So it didn't matter if you were outspending. Your value was created because you, you bought acreage for very little money or no money in some cases. And you found oil on it. And once you struck oil, it's really, really valuable now. And you, know, you better get after and drill it really quick. Bring that NAV forward. Produce your resource. Sell it and go find the next resource because this research is only going to last you five to seven years. There's not a lot of inventory and outspend really wasn't the issue. It's you delivered value through the drill bit, through the exploration. That has changed. With the advent of shale, we have repeatable inventory. Uh, you know, repeatable to an extent, there's still geological risk, but generally speaking, more, more repeatable. It's not quite a manufacturing process. I don't want to use that word, but it has similar characteristics of repeatability. And companies now don't have three or five or seven years of inventory. You know, in some cases, we have 30 years of inventory, or 40 years of inventory, or 50 years of inventory. You don't deliver value through exploration anymore. The buildup of that inventory has already been reflected in the, in the values of these stocks for those that have good resource. It's really not an E and P, it's P. Yep. It's, it's production. And so the market is asking not so much where you're going to get more oil. In fact, don't do that. Don't spend money finding more resource because you already have a lot. It's show me how you can monetize this resource over a long period of time with a cost structure that makes sense and that creates value for shareholders. It's almost like, you know, the analogy is like an industrial company. Like, I don't care how many widgets an industrial company makes necessarily, right? I care that they have good, prof they have good profit margins and they have good returns on capital and they have good cash flows that they're making those widgets economically. So that's the way this industry needs to shift. It's a mind shift that needs to occur as well. And when commodity prices go up, and they'll be cyclical, you know, they go up, they go down. When they go up, you don't chase and spend all your money 
making more widgets, making more barrels, that you pace yourself at a level which makes sense relative to the size of your resource so that you have, um, you have the right level of inventory, you have the right scale, you have the right corporate structure, the right balance sheet, so that you can monetize this resource and return cash to shareholders in a very, very logical way. And when oil prices rise, you have more cash and you can return more cash to shareholders. And when they fall, you'll have less cash, you'll be returning less cash to shareholders. And we're seeing some companies adopt this successfully, uh, but it needs to, it's a, mind sh it's a mind shift that needs to occur in the minds of these corporations that to their credit, has grown production successfully and gotten value for kind of 30 years going into the shale revolution. But the world's just different now. You went from resource scarcity to resource abundance and the business model has to keep up. And on the service side, you know, things aren't necessarily very different. It's built, historically it's been, well, I, I add capacity when activity is good and then I stack capacity when activity is bad. And I generally speaking, use all my cash flow to add to capacity. The mind shift needs to be similar to, what we, to where it needs to go on an E&P side, as in, look, I'll add capacity if it's backed by contract because I have confidence in this base load of activity. And if you want me to increase beyond the base load because you have some temporary shift, you know, gear, you know, flex up, I need some guarantees that the returns to my shareholders make sense. And we're starting to see it probably a little bit more on the service side already. Even this earnings season, we've seen companies cut CapEx meaningfully and be rewarded for it. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things. We, we were talking about this earlier in the week. I mean, the frame of reference is so different. As, as recently as 2007, peak oil was what every strategist was writing about. That that transition from resource scarcity to resource abundancy, I think, is a, is a big one for, for people to reframe. And, you know, we have an advantage that because of our long-term horizon, we get a lot of management teams come in here. It may have even been a couple of years ago. I think the Anadarko CEO, when you hosted him, he said, it's the first time in my career that people have rewarded cash flow and capital allocation as opposed to purely production growth. And right. And so what you just said sounds so intuitive, and yet it's been really a reframing of how people allocate uh, capital within the space. So let's transition to maybe, um, you know, Clearbridge, as you said, we're, we're kind of concentrated active managers. So one of your, your roles is really to figure out how to separate winners and losers. And historically, you know, the, the, the two biggest areas within energy that we've had exposure to as a firm is exploration and production companies from in using acronyms E&Ps, and then the oil services space. So in your mind, what do you think from here will separate winners and losers in each of those kind of categories? And what would it be different between an E&P company and an, and an oil services company? So generally, I would come back to the comment that, that, that we just made, that in order to separate yourself and become attractive as an investment, you have to be treated the same way another investment in any other industry would be treated. Like, is this a compelling as a standalone opportunity at a reasonable mid-cycle oil price that I'm going to get the right return on capital employed, right free cash flow, and some growth. You need some, you know, companies generally speaking need to have some growth. It doesn't have to be 30%, but it needs to be 5 or 6% or 10% or whatever the right number is, depending on your resource structure. But you need to just have those very normal factors like normal companies have, and you need to offer that to the market. And we've seen good examples of that already in, in, a, in the market within the super majors, the ENPs. You know, names like Suncor, names like Chevron, they don't have big growth rates, but they have a mid-single digit free cash flow yield and they have return on capital employed that's, they're earning their cost of capital. And those stocks have outperformed and they get, they don't get, they don't trade a discount multiple despite the fact that they don't have a lot of growth. So you're seeing examples of companies doing a good job focusing on margin expansion, focusing on free cash flow yields, focusing on being efficient rather than just focusing on, you know, how do I maximize my growth? And you've brought this up uh, with Suncor because 
they're not necessarily even the lowest cost producer, but to that point of inventory and just long lived assets, they, they, they've certainly lived within their means and kind of have understood the dynamics that they're operating, it feels like, relative to their peer group. Yeah, I mean, they, they've benefited from investments that they've made in a different commodity price environment. And so they do have a lot of sunk, sunk capital that they're now harvesting, and that's been driving that story. But the idea being of you're focusing on returning, on maximizing your cash yields and your margins rather than figuring out of, you know, how do I expand my ENP portfolio? And within services, we're also seeing kind of similar things in certain subsectors, specifically within this mid-group. And we've talked about the companies that can organically expand their total addressable market, and they could do it free cash flow creatively through organic means, either by entering a new a uh, new product line, new new uh, new area within oil field services, or by innovating kind of new tools and new in, in, in kind of having new equipment to sell to the industry that the operators need. And so companies that operate within niches, a, a little bit more a little bit more insulated from sort of the ups and downs within the commodity price environment, but also have a little bit of pricing power and a little bit of market share power um, that they can then translate to good margins. But at the same time, being we're seeing those companies that arguably should be the most aggressive deploying capital because they have something unique at being very conservative addressing it, right. deploying capital, despite the fact that they're going to earn really good returns by saying, look, we understand that we have to protect the balance sheet. We have to protect return. We have to protect free cash flow yield. We have to protect return on capital employed. And those things have to balance. There's no one thing that we go to. And we've seen multiple expansion in those names, and they've also acted pretty well. So I know a lot of things, um, a lot of times when we talk about what might reactivate sentiment around a sector is M&A activity. And so you've, as you said, you've now had people kind of run their balance sheets or kind of their production profiles pretty conservatively, certainly on the CapEx side. What do you think is, um, do you have any kind of crystal ball or what do, you, what do you think might activate anything from the M&A front um, that might create actually sentiment uh, change in, in the uh, industry? So it's interesting that you bring that up. M&A has gone through several cycles within oil field services. And within ENPs over the past, you know, let's just take the four-year period since since the downturn began. In the beginning, we saw the services M&A sort of you know spring up. You know, FMC Technib they got together, formed the company. You had Baker and Hal tried, and ended up being Baker GE. So that was a kind of very in interesting dynamic there. You had Schlumberger Cameron. You have a number of offshore drillers. They're still merging, and that industry is becoming a little bit more consolidated actually as a result. Um, but then. That sort of played itself out. You still have a few sort of small mid-cap, similar pressure pumping companies and that probably should consolidate, but there's not a clear path on how that, that would actually occur. But then you had ENPs do asset deals. Mm -hmm. And you had sort of a, the permageddon when you had about a 12-month period where a lot of the Permian names started buying privately held acreage. So acreage held by the Blackstones and the Blackrocks and the, you know, the energy specialized private equity boutiques and individuals, everybody wanted to get bigger. The Permian theme was playing what out. What time frame was that, Dimitri? This is 2016, 2017. Yep. So you had, especially kind of around the summer going to the fall of that year. So you had a lot of equity coming to the market. You had essentially companies deciding, look, we're going to get bigger. We understand the we understand the promise of the Permian. We understand the, profit, the how, how prolific these wells are. You had fifty thousand, you had sixty-three thousand dollars in acre prices being paid. Things that you know we haven't we haven't seen in forever and ever. When you know a lot of companies traded thirty thousand dollars an acre, and that played itself out. So the companies got bigger through private, you know, sort of public on private type of strategy. And so the next question is, you know, are we going to see public on public? Are we going to see sort of larger scale deals? 
And you know, my crystal ball is always a little bit foggy, but you know, it would uh, the next logical step is probably going to be we'll see one or two large scale deals, probably in the Permian Basin, but could be multi basin, of majors coming into the you know probably into the Permian and and doing larger transactions. And do I know this for sure? Of course not. But when you step back, you think about you know why hasn't this happened yet? Because that would be the pushback. Like well, you know. Company public company prices used to be lower. Why you know why didn't the majors do something then? And I think they probably couldn't. This is one of the first times in years where you could logically make a case for why it should occur now. This is the first time in four years where the multiples for the majors are on par or higher in some cases than the large cap ENPs. Hmm. So if you were going to do something, you're going to issue equity for something, you could actually do it accretively now before you'd be taking on a very large dividend obligation if you're going to, if you're going to dilute yourself down by buying somebody with, with stock. And now you don't have that. So you can actually do an accretive deal. How about with the payout ratios with those companies with the integrated? Or that you feel like they have room to kind of do some, they'd be able to do this? Well, so a, a few things, interesting you said that a few things have happened to make that easier. One is the cash flow yields for the majors have improved. And secondly, well, two things. Um, valuations have come down for the public ENPs, making that burden less. And thirdly, the cash flow outspend for the for the high quality independence has gone down or been eliminated. So if you had to buy somebody and then continually take on debt issue equity to invest in that asset, you don't have that problem anymore. Right. And in some cases, they're free cash flowing. So you can use that cash flow to pay the dividend on the assets, on the on the shares that you already have. So there's ways to structure that. It's easier to structure that transaction now. And the other point I would make is I don't think the majors were prepared to do deals in the Permian four years ago. If you look at their presentations, if you listen to the companies, what was their strategy? It was, we're, we're going abroad. We're going LNG. We're going to Australia. We're going deep water. That is our strategy. That's what, that's our core competency. It's what we're going to achieve. If you look at their presentations today and you, you, know, you listen to companies and you see what their strategy is, it's Permian is right up there. It's a top three asset. It's a top four asset. They have prioritized this, this part of their, of their portfolio and they have reshuffled their workflows in order to, take it, to bring their technological know-how and their organizational might into this asset where they probably couldn't have integrated a major ENP four years ago. It would have been a failure. And you saw that with you know, Exxon buying XTO. They bought XTO for a lot of money and then effectively let them run themselves. So they had an arms, almost an arm's length type of type of relationship because they couldn't, there wasn't that ability to go in and extract synergies out of XTO and and and, and merge it into the right. parent organization. That that is no longer the case. Uh, these companies have are are doing a good job drilling the acreage they have. They're bringing their technological know-how to bear. And they were actually major drivers of kind of upward surprise in U.S. production in August and September of this year, which was said in the beginning of this podcast, um, because they have, quote unquote, cracked the code and have brought the organization in step with the needs of a highly repeatable asset. Yep. So we're in a different place today, strategically and from workflow perspective than I think we would have been in the past. So I'm going to close with two rapid fire questions. You brought up something earlier. Is there a big disconnect right now between public market valuations and private market valuations for the same assets right now? They're starting to come together. Yeah. And then the uh, last thing is um, one of the things y- you had kind of been steering um, 
PMs away from offshore exposure a few years ago. But the idea was that land exposure wouldn't be that different between the U.S. and international. Is it really shale dynamics of why you've seen kind of U.S. kind of land activity be so much ahead of kind of international activity over the last couple of years? The recovery has just been much more muted and slower outside the U.S. Yeah. And uh, 2019 is probably the first year since the downturn where we're going to see international activity rising. Um, international capex rising, we're starting to um, see those numbers come through for the first time. But yeah, effectively, if you just logically, if you think about it, if U.S. is a swing producer and decline rates are very high and activity has to rise every year to keep production growing, which if it's a swing producer, by definition, its activity needs to grow every year. That's where the kind of disproportionate growth is going to be. And um, if you look at kind of the back envelope numbers, and we can argue about very you know, kind of specifics, but if you're going to keep growing, call it 1 to 1.2, 1.3 million barrels a day year on year, kind of continuously, which is roughly demand growth globally, activity in the U.S. probably needs to rise around 12 to 15 percent every single year. So over time, there'll be cycles, but over time, activity should go up. And then the question is, can the services guys, NENPs, do it in a highly profitable return on capital employed, free cash flowing, compelling free cash flow manner? So you just said something. So if international has been declining, but you think it's going to increase in 2019, what do you think is that kind of swing? What, what creates that swing to an inflection point to positive in 2019 for the for the international kind of drilling? It's a longer cycle of business. Yeah. Um, you're finally seeing some brand stability, and which giving is it gives a little bit of comfort to you know the majors, but also the national oil companies, and national oil companies that have repaired their balance sheets over long over the past four years. Um, but also it's a longer cycle business, so they have to look out further into the future. It's not like shale where you drill a well, you know, six months later you have production. It's long planning cycle. You have to start developing projects. It's going to take a while to um, sort of get production going. So they're looking out into 2020 plus, and there's not a whole lot of new projects that are going to be coming online. The bulk of projects that have been FID or sanctioned uh, coming into the downturn are now uh, rolling off. And so if you want to protect against your decline rate, if you want to, you know, got the bit grow production a little bit, you need to start moving you know, and start getting after that a little bit now. And at the same time, you have kind of national oil companies that have massively underinvested into their resource. And it's a national issue for them because, you know, in a lot of petro economies, selling oil is the primary revenue source. So as those countries are starting to see a, a sort of a, a, an accelerating decline rate, then they, they're going after it, try to try to mitigate. Well, why don't we end it there? I mean, it's such an interesting topic. We could probably go for, for longer, but we'll, we'll keep you for a future podcast. I know this was your kind of original experience. I'm sure we're going to have you on here again soon. So uh, for the listeners, um, we'll, we hope you'll continue to join us uh, throughout 2019. You'll go back next time to hearing Jeff Schultz's melodic voice instead of mine. And uh, we welcome any questions, comments, or suggestions. Uh, which to remind people, you can email to us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Please note the following past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers, mainly Dimitri's, as of February 13th, 2019, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clearbridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. So with that, thanks and have a great day.